stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon. Happy Thursday, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our number in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. A lot to get to in this hour. We'll hear some comments from the Bank of Canada governor. Uh, what's he thinking in terms of the state of the economy, the need for further interest rate hikes? Also going to hear from uh, former finance minister Ted Morton. Wrote an interesting op-ed piece today on why a uh, windfall tax is such a bad idea. So we'll get to that. I've uh, got some time for your phone calls coming up as well. I want to look in on where things are at with the UCP leadership race. We're now up to six declared candidates. And the possibility that that crowded field might get even more crowded. And a couple of uh, well-known names on the sidelines perhaps waiting to jump in. Now, we spoke the other day with Leela here. Uh, Chester Strathmore, MLA. She's the latest to join the race. Uh, we're hearing that Transportation Minister Rajan Sani might jump in as well. Interestingly, she would be the first from either Calgary or Edmonton in this race. Uh, and another well-known Calgary politician, uh, Calgary Nose Hill MP Michelle Rempel-Garner, said to be considering a run as well. So getting very interesting in a race that hasn't even officially been declared yet, not officially underway. Uh, joining us uh, to assess the landscape, where things are at, what we're hearing about how crowded this field may yet get. We're pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Rick Bell, Calgary Sun columnist, calgarysun.com. You can find his latest today on the uh, transportation minister and her possible entry into this race. Rick, always great to have you here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a little surprised, honestly, that, that it's getting as crowded as it is, but maybe I shouldn't be. What's your thoughts on, on how things are shaping up so far here? I, I'm actually not surprised. I mean, in, in previous races, there's been, you know, several people who've wanted to run. I remember covering the race uh, to replace uh, Don Getty, and there was a a big field, I believe bigger than what we have now at the moment. And there was quite a field as well for after uh, after Ralph left. So I'm not, I'm not really that surprised. There's a lot of different voices in the United Conservative Party. Remember... This party is actually born out of two parties, the Wild Rose and the PCs. So I'm not really that, uh, you know, perplexed or puzzled um, that there are so many people because, you know, there's just such a wide range and such a big tent that you're going to have a lot of people filling that tent. Yeah, that's true. How crowded do you think this might end up getting? We're at six, possibly eight soon. Are we sort of nearing the the upper end of this? Well, unless there's some candidate that, uh, you know, just comes out of right field, um, you know, we have basically Rajan Sani is, you know, I can confirm is announcing on Monday. So that is for sure, for sure, for sure. So that is the next person. Uh, signaling their intention to enter the race. That will be happening on Monday. Well, we have Rebecca Schultz, who is also from Calgary, first-term uh, MLA, um, also a cabinet minister, yeah. um, Used to is from Saskatchewan originally. She is thinking about a run. I have not spoken to her. She's one of the few people I haven't spoken to about this. And, of course, well-known Calgary MP, Michelle Rempel-Garner, who is, you know, I'm I'm checking my phone every 10 minutes <laughs> to see if uh, she is or she is not entering because, you know, we get all sorts of signals that she will run, but actually nothing 
nothing concrete yet. So we could end up with Rajon Sunny, the transportation minister, will be in. Rebecca Schultz, also from Calgary, could be in. Michelle Rempel-Garner, also from Calgary, could be in. So that's where you're getting that uh, urban compliment. Edmonton, well, you know, Edmonton no. is not the most fertile ground for <laughs> the UCP. No. So I, yeah, there probably will not be a candidate um, coming from there, but we'll see. Yeah, we will. I mean, obviously, I mean, there's there's Ron Ambrose. I know there's some conservatives who would dream that maybe she would jump into this race. Um, I, I don't I don't think she's interested, mind you. But if you were looking for an Edmonton all star, right. I guess she might might fit the bill. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I did see as well today, uh, by the way, Rick Brian Jean is uh, having his official campaign launch next Wednesday. I mean, you know, we, we've known all along that he was in the race. Travis Taves, I guess, was the first to maybe officially launch the campaign. At this point, can we look at the race and assess, you know, the big names, the favorites, or is it, is it too early, do you think? Well, it, it this really shakes out uh, over the course of a campaign. I think the important thing for your listeners to remember is this is not a popularity contest uh, or even a process that the vast majority of Albertans are participating in. This is candidates going out, selling memberships, convincing members, getting them to vote. And so people that you might say, wow, this is a candidate. Everybody knows this candidate or nobody knows that candidate. That candidate couldn't possibly win. Um, it doesn't always work that way. If I, if I can uh, share a very quick story, I remember when Ed Stelmack was running. And he met me down at Joey's in Eau Claire. And I was sitting with him, talking to him. And then he took me out and showed me his old bus. He borrowed a bus or was given a bus to tour around the province. And he had, you know, several MLAs, but for the most part, they were, you know, low-key. They weren't known by a lot of people. Then there was Ed, and I thought to myself as I was talking to him, now there's a real nice guy, Ed Stelmack, but there is no way this guy is going to win. He was going up against Jim Dinning, the famous treasurer uh, of the province, and uh, former treasurer at that point, and Ted Morton, you know, big conservative intellectual. There's no way Stelmack is going to win. And, of course, Stelmack won. Because Stelmack was tapping in to areas that especially areas of Alberta he was familiar with and he was selling memberships and he was getting people voting for him and he got into that top group and then you know preferential ballots and all the rest and he and he got in so sometimes you may see well you know so and so is a really well known your listeners know them that doesn't necessarily mean they're either the front runner or they're going to win i mean there are some people like Travis Taves. He was the finance minister for Kenny. Yep. His challenge is going to be to what degree is he going to distance himself from Kenny and to what degree do UCP members want him to distance himself from Kenny? So his challenge is he's known by some more people. He's got lots, 23 MLAs on his side. That doesn't necessarily declare, declare a personal winner. Because people have won in the past with far fewer endorsements. So he's a candidate a lot of people are going to target as an establishment candidate. They're going to try to pin on him the idea that he's Kenny 
2.0, that he's Kenny with cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. <laughs> and um, Brian Jean, you know, very well-known, former Wild Rose leader. Danielle Smith, very well-known, former Wild Rose leader and radio host. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, will that necessarily translate? It could, but ne- not not necessarily. And it depends, again, what the members want. Do they want, is their first priority going to be voting for somebody they like, somebody who will reflect their values? How much will the question of who could beat Notley, who could beat the NDP, figure in each party member's calculation? You know, do we need somebody who is an urban moderate, perhaps? Or no, maybe we don't. Or do we need somebody that is a straight-as-an-arrow, you know, movement conservative? I mean, those questions are going to come out. But while we sit here, there could be one of these candidates that you've talked about that are already out there. They may be having a meeting tonight with 150 people out somewhere far from Calgary and Edmonton, and we're not covering it. We're not there. We don't even know about it. Yeah. And that could be 150 memberships. Yep. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. I mean, if there's one thing Pierre Polyev has taught the conservatives, it's that you can draw from all sorts of, of people and in all sorts of ways that the traditional campaigns of the past have not drawn on. So really it's hard to say where anybody's going when, by the way, we're still waiting for the rules from the party on how this thing's going to be conducted. So the, you're right. The game hasn't really even started, despite people declaring that they're in the game, because we don't even know the rules of the game yet. Well, and, and you know, I mean, look, if Jason Kenney had resigned, I mean, that would have triggered all of that, so Correct. the party can take its time. In the meantime, though, Jason Kenney's still premier. He, he's not, you know, content to just, you know, fade into the background here. He's still very prominent. He's out there making announcements. He's still doing his, his weekly radio show. That certainly casts a, a shadow on this race, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, I, I no secret, I wrote a column saying that I thought the Premier should uh, have left, yeah. should have said that he was not only uh, stepping down, but stepping out and leaving. But uh, he's not, so he's going to hang in there, and that will cost, uh, cause a shadow to be cast. And it is going to be interesting, again, because he's still there, to what degree each of these candidates try to distance themselves from Kenny or feel they have to. And you saw that we, when Leela Ahir from Chestermere, when she came out, she was very strong about anybody who's a candidate and didn't speak up against Kenny, well, where were they? How can they be agents of change now when they weren't agents of change when Kenny was, you know, solidly in power? So there are going to, and, you know, Brian Jean has a record of, you know, he ran on getting rid of Kenny. And, and Todd Lowen, who I hear from my sources, is doing quite well in picking up um, support, especially in rural Alberta, in these early innings, um, you know, actually got thrown out of the UCP caucus because he called on Kenny to resign publicly. So it's going to be a real mix. Once things get going, this is going to get very, very interesting because there is such a wide range of candidates and as i said you were asking about michelle rempel garner that will just make it even more interesting because then we're having an mp from ottawa also enter the race who is well known and you know 
come join the party. <laughs> Absolutely. The weather, the weather, the weather, the, wa- the water's warm. Come well, in. It's going to make for an interesting stampede too, isn't it? Oh, yes. I oh, mean, it's goodness. going to be, well, and, and, and what's funny is, uh, is, is Premier Kenny going to host the Premier's uh, stampede breakfast? Oh, yeah, I mean, question. it's uh, like, what do you ask him? Um, uh, what, what's his next job is? I mean, it, it is, you know, the stampede, which is always a big political time. It's going to be, there's going to be no, there's probably going to end up being a pancake shortage before this is over because there's <laughs> going to be so many people down here trying to, uh, to, to take over, uh, take over the party. And the party really, as you know, and, and I'm, you, I'm sure you've observed it many times, is really such a fresh entity. It was constructed very quickly as a kind of marriage of convenience of two other parties, the PCs and the Wild Rose, really in order to defeat the NDP, which they did in a landslide. Now I think the party has to think about who they are and really start defining themselves. And part of that defining of the party comes from who they select as the leader. So I find that very interesting as well, because at the beginning it was just, hey, let's get together, let's get, let's defeat Notley, let's get her out of there, get her out of there. Okay, they got her out of there. Now they've had the last challenging three years, mm-hmm. uh, and I think now this is going to be an opportunity to see exactly what does the UCP offer to Albertans? What is it that, who are they? And I think that's going to be, a you know, a big question that, all of the candidates are going to have to address each in their own way. So again, I'm not surprised there are as many as there are. We'll see how many more decide to join in. Now, much more is mentioned. CalgarySun.com. Rick, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making time for us here. Anytime. All the best. Uh, there you go. That is uh, one and only Rick Bell, columnist, longtime columnist uh, with the uh, Calgary Sun and some media. So uh, some thoughts from him on this race, which could still have a few more high-profile entrants uh, before it officially gets underway. And it sounds like some candidates might actually be sort of hesitating maybe because you don't know the rules you don't know how this is all going to play out maybe once that's announced we'll clarify some things in fact we know right now that corporate profits according to economists are one of the major drivers of inflation the fact that corporations are making record profits in this difficult time has contributed to at least a fourth of the inflation that we're experiencing right now. So it was NDP leader Jagmeet Singh earlier this week, uh, lamenting what he views as excess corporate profits and touting the idea of a special windfall tax. Uh, he says would generate additional revenue for governments to then distribute back to Canadian families. Now, this was part of the debate in uh, the nation's capital earlier this week around cost of living issues and what governments could do to help address the problem or, or help Canadians you know, deal with this, this ongoing situation. And, and that must seem like a tempting idea for the federal liberals who are already entertaining the, uh, the idea of a luxury tax. This kind of stuff can, can sell politically, at least amongst their base. The idea that we're taxing the rich, we're taxing wealthy corporations, we're taxing, uh, taxing excess profits. Like I say, I mean, that, that plays well with, with certain groups. And, you know, I think for the liberal base, wanting to, to maybe outflank the NDP or not be outflanked by the NDP, this could be something they're tempted to go after. I mean, already in the election, they talked about uh, something similar for banks and and insurance companies. So, well, it might seem harmless enough, you know, 
companies with too much money. They don't know what to do with it anyway. What's the harm of, uh, you know, dipping in a little to that? This could have all kinds of uh, consequences, intended and unintended, and, and something we should hope that the federal government steers clear of. It's a great op-ed piece in the National Post today outlining uh, the possible harms of this approach, and in particular why uh, the West, why Alberta should be concerned. Uh, joining us to talk more about it is the uh, author of that piece, Ted Morton, former Alberta finance minister, professor emeritus, University of Calgary, executive fellow at the School of Public Policy, and not, I'm assuming, not going through another leadership race. Uh, Ted Morton, <laughs> great to have you with us here this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Rob. Good to join you. Um, first of all, I mean, obviously, you know, there, there's there's maybe enough here that we should keep an eye on this. Obviously, Jagmeet Singh is not the prime minister. But, you know, as you assess it and, and were sort of prompted to to lay out your concerns, what, what are your thoughts on how you know realistic a prospect this is? Well, uh, Singh and the NDP uh, obviously has never understood that before you can redistribute wealth, you have to create it. And uh, frankly, uh, Justin Trudeau hasn't done a very good job of that either. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is particularly true in the area of... Uh, of oil and gas, the uh, we've there's been a globally there's been a chronic underinvestment in uh, in oil and gas exploration because of uh, the obsession with climate change and and, and uh, emissions reductions, and the result is even before even before February 24th and Russia invading Ukraine, we were already short of oil. The price of oil was already into the 90s. So. What's happened since then? Of course, everybody has seen the price of oil, the price of natural gas. Uh, now is not the time to bring in an excess, excess profits tax. Let the oil and gas companies recover, particularly in Canada, reinvest that money. And uh, there's a lot Canada can do, as I wrote, both for the environment, for our own economy, and for our freedom-loving neighbors in, uh, in Europe. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. We talk about excess profits, whatever that means. I'm not sure you quantify excess, but it certainly leaves out a lot of context because if we want to talk about oil and gas companies uh, that are posting some profits right now, certainly we need to factor in the huge losses, right, those companies have, have been dealing with over the last few years. Many companies are hitting, it's based in the news, uh, one company after another for the past week or two, they're hitting their highest their highest value in eight years. Well, what's happened in the, in the last eight years? <laughs> They've been going down, going down, down a lot. And it's it's not just the companies. You, everybody in Calgary and Edmonton, know the human cost of this. People have lost companies have closed or moved to the U.S. Uh, people have lost jobs. People have lost homes. Uh, look at the finances again. Other countries, you could make the arguments I've just made about the, the negatives of uh, uh, excess profit tax on oil and gas. In Canada, it becomes, for Alberta and Saskatchewan, it becomes even more uh, painful or specific. Section 92A states very clearly that natural resource development is the jurisdiction responsibility and the business of, provincial, of provinces. Peter Lougheed fought tooth and claw for that back in 1982. I was here. I watched it. That was his biggest prize that he brought home. But the Trudeau government with the carbon tax, Bill C-68, all of that is chipping away at what uh, at what uh, Trudeau, excuse me, what Lougheed fought so hard to. He didn't want another national energy program that devastated Alberta and Saskatchewan in the 80s. And uh, the last eight years is more or less what we've, we've had a mild version of that. An excess profit tax would plunge 
plunges right back into the right back into the mud hole. Well, that's the thing. We're at a point where we we really want to be encouraging companies to invest. And and I think companies are starting to see that, you know, some of these conditions are going to be maybe longer lasting with higher prices, that maybe there's good reason to be investing. But they've been understandably nervous, given everything they've had to deal with over the last few years. If if we want companies to invest, how damaging would it be to to throw this kind of a, a tax at them? It'd be like throwing a hand a hand grenade yeah. <laughs> into the basement of a house. The uh, the Ukraine Ukraine's uh, ambassador to uh, Canada spoke in Calgary yesterday, and and she she said everything I've just said about uh, Western Europe's uh, obsession with uh, climate change and ignoring the energy security issue. Uh, but she also said all governments, but of course she was speaking to Ottawa in specific because she's, you know, in Canada now. She said you can't increase future supply unless you also, you, you can't encourage governments, excuse me, the governments cannot encourage companies to increase the supply of oil unless you also guarantee them access to markets. Yeah. Because if, uh, if, 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 if Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals are now his NDP uh, buddies continue with all the anti-infrastructure, the anti-pipeline uh, policies that they've had put in place over the last couple of years, uh, there's no point in increasing uh, production of oil and gas in, in Canada. You can't get it to markets. If you can't get it to markets, it's not worth anything. You touched on your piece on the uh, the comments recently from former Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau, which were really interesting because, and maybe he bears some responsibility for this too, but it's worth noting that there's there's no real focus, there's no real urgency when it comes to Canada's competitiveness or lack thereof. And all these ideas that are being talked about in Ottawa, none of that really addresses that core problem, does it? Well, you know me pretty well, Rob. I don't quote ex-liberal finance ministers very often. That's true. And the fact that Trudeau's, well, frankly, one of his best friends and his former finance minister said uh, there needs to be a, a wake-up call uh, in Ottawa that competitiveness, he says it's not just one of several issues. He says it, it is the single biggest issue facing Canada, not just this year, but he says for the next couple of decades. We're there are uh, World Bank uh, studies showing that Canada is going to remain uncompetitive for at least another decade because of the policies of the last decade. Right. That is, he says, we, you know, there was much more of a focus on redistributing wealth instead of, as you alluded to earlier, actually generating that wealth in the first place. And so if we keep exactly. talking about redistribution uh, without that, that other side of it, we're going to run into some big problems, aren't we? Exactly. Well, folks, we'll read your piece. It's up at nationalpost.com. Ted Morton, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time for us here today. You bet. Thank you, Rob. Cheers. Bye-bye. Uh, that's uh, former Alberta Finance Minister Ted Morton. Uh, he's an executive fellow with the School of Public Policy, Professor Emeritus, University of Calgary, has mentioned uh, his piece today in the National Post that an excess profit tax would kill investment and alienate the West. We'll see. Look, again, this is, um, you know, an idea that the NDP have, have tried it out. But again, you know, Clearly, the liberals see strategic value in trying to, you know, outflank the NDP on the left or minimize the relevance of the NDP. So, you know, maybe the liberals worry that, well, if we ignore this idea and Jagmeet Singh runs around talking about it and progressive voters get increasingly excited about it, that could hurt us. Maybe we should steal one of Jagmeet's ideas and look like the heroes.
that's that would be my concern about the temptation here. I, I think, you know, the, the concerns around the impact of this are, are valid. Welcome back. You can reach us here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. A lot of ground still to cover on the program here on this Thursday afternoon. But I want to take a look at an interesting new report out today from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Uh, because I think it raises some some big questions about, you know, the future of rural Alberta and just the, the future of smaller communities. What we've seen is that uh, in recent years, uh, a lot of communities have seen uh, population stagnation, even in some cases, population decline. And so that that has some some real consequences, obviously. Now, a big part of that is due to aging populations. But obviously, I mean, every community in Alberta and everywhere else in the country is experiencing, you know, the, the trends of aging population. So why aren't we seeing, you know, more families, younger uh, people in these communities? So it, it poses some some challenges, too, I think, for, you know, the viability of those communities, puts some additional pressure on, on provincial governments uh, to perhaps have to support these communities. Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about, you know, what we're observing here. And what the implications are, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. One of the authors of this report, uh, Kevin McQuillan, is a professor of the Department of Sociology at the University of Calgary, as mentioned. Co-author of this report for the School of Public Policy, policyschool.ca, is where the the report can be downloaded and read. Kevin, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the question of, of why. Why are we seeing smaller communities sort of, you know, either level off in terms of population growth or in some cases even start to decline? Well, I, I think the uh, some of what's occurring in the smaller communities, of course, is occurring in the larger communities as well. And that's the, the shrinking size of families, uh, the low birth rate for all across Canada. Really, since the 1970s, we've had... Uh, what demographers call a fertility rate, which is below the level we need to replenish the population. In the big cities, of course, they've uh, been able to offset that more by accepting newcomers, whether from other provinces or from other countries, that uh, allows their populations to continue to grow and to offset part of the trend uh, towards population aging. But that's been tougher to do in many of the smaller communities uh, across the province, and I would say, and across the country for that matter. Uh, and you know, I would say some of the changes we've seen in in the resource areas, which did provide uh, a lot more employment away from the big cities in recent decades, that's of course tailed off uh, in recent years, and I think that's also led to some outflow of population from some communities that. Uh, that were dependent on on the resource industries. So when we talk about municipalities in Alberta, obviously I mean, we've got cities, and I mean, you know, a city can be 10,000 people, a city could be a million people. Right. Um, we have cities, towns, villages, uh, hamlets, et cetera, so on. Yep. So is, is this an issue more so? Are we talking about, you know, it's a trend amongst smaller communities? Is, is it partly geographic? I mean, what, what are we seeing here? I, I think there's bits of both of that. It's certainly a trend uh, outside of the cities. All of Alberta's cities are, are doing pretty well in terms of uh, at least stability, and in most cases, fairly significant population growth. I mean, we've seen places like Red Deer and Lethbridge uh, 
course, growing quite significantly in recent years. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that, that leads us to focus, certainly in this paper, on the issues that are being faced uh, by the smaller communities. Uh, and again, I would just underline that fact that on, on the one hand, uh, with low birth rates, uh, they, they are growing more slowly, but it, it really is the loss of population in some cases, often young people leaving to go off to the cities, uh, and the fact that most certainly new immigrants coming to the country, and there are a few exceptions, but generally speaking, uh, tend to, to locate themselves into the larger cities. Right, and, and we talk about smaller cities that are seeing a lot of growth, as this study points out. I mean, you know, Airdrie, Chestermere, Spruce Grove, Leduc, exactly. Saskatchewan. What do they all have in common? They're all, you know, basically bedroom communities of either Edmonton or Calgary. That's right, and I think that has been one of the the big issues and one that I think we need to watch in in uh, the years ahead. I mean, we see a lot of talk these days about working from home and maybe instead of being a temporary response to COVID, that that becomes more of a permanent uh, choice for a lot of people. And of course, those are communities that, that some people may be willing to locate in, not too far from the cities. If they have to go into work periodically, it's, it's not the end of the world to do that. For things like shopping and entertainment, it's, you know, still being close to an Edmonton or a Calgary, uh, leaves that open. But when we move further away from those, those larger urban areas, then it does become, I think, more of a challenge. Well, and, and especially for these communities, right? And, and so maybe you can understand younger families, maybe they see opportunities to move to big cities or closer to big cities. You know, those who have spent their lives in these smaller communities, they've set roots, you know, they're likely to stick around. So, you know, maybe mm-hmm. older uh, demographics, those who are retired might be more, more likely to stay in those communities. But in terms of sustaining those communities, in terms of a tax base, that, that poses some some real and obvious challenges, doesn't it? It really does, and uh, I think the tax side of things is certainly one. Uh, most people, you know, as they move into the retirement ages, their incomes tend to be lower than uh, than would have been the case previously. So there are some issues uh, that they may face, indeed, you know, dealing with things like property taxes and so on. Uh, so that's certainly a significant part of it, I think. Uh, but I think there's just also issues related to the services that uh, older populations in smaller communities will need. Uh, think, first of all, of course, about health care issues. Uh, most of us, as we get a bit old, tend to need a little bit more in the way of medical care. Uh, and we've seen some of the discussions about attracting, say, family doctors to smaller communities. And clearly, smaller communities can't provide the range of health care uh, facilities and treatment that you would get in larger communities. So I, I really think that's going to be a challenge in the years ahead. Some of the uh, officials I've talked to in some of the smaller communities have raised, for instance, the ambulance issue is one that they worry a whole lot about. Uh, if you're a significant distance from a community with a major uh, major hospital, then there's a lot of worry about, you know, can you get people from those communities to the services they need quickly enough? Uh, so I, I don't think it's just a, a question around uh, the tax and the financial viability of communities, though I think that's important. But I think there are big challenges in terms of providing uh, the services that people in the smaller and especially the, the more remote smaller communities need. Well, and so in terms of addressing this, I mean, maybe there's an opportunity for, you know, smaller communities to 
try to get creative, find, uh, you know, unique ways of trying to incentivize, you know, families to stay or, you know, newcomers to, to the province to, to want to, to locate there. But beyond that, I mean, is, is there anything, you know, that can be done at, at the provincial level? Like, what, what is the problem we're, we're trying to address here? Well, I would say the, the first part of your response, I, I think, is something to look at. There are uh, communities across the province and in other provinces as well that have had somewhat more success in terms of uh, attracting new employment, new industries, for instance, that creates employment. Uh, it's been very interesting. We've seen certainly in British Columbia and Ontario a, a movement of some older people out of the larger cities. Uh, it, it looks like in places like Vancouver and Toronto, some people are kind of cashing in, so yeah. to speak, on the houses that have appreciated a lot in value and they're retiring to smaller communities. Uh, I think those are certainly possibilities uh, that we might see. You know, thinking about uh, the provincial level and the health for small communities, uh, you know, I think there are two things that, that we need to think about. Uh, you know, one is how we can provide some better services to smaller communities. Uh, you know, I think one thing that comes up uh, often, uh, you know, is good access to broadband in, in all parts of the province. I think that's just an essential for all of us now. Many communities do have good access, but some don't. Uh, and the other thing, it seems to me, is the possibility of, of cooperation and sharing among communities. So, uh, you know, there are parts of the provinces where there are quite a few small-sized towns and even villages not too far apart, and thinking about how we might be able to uh, cooperate more in terms of, of sharing resources. Uh, you know, thinking, for instance, of a family health clinic, uh, if if you can set one up in a community that's not too far away and there might be a, a patient base then for a doctor that might include five, six, seven communities that are not too far apart, uh, I think those are, are some of the things that uh, that we're going to have to explore in the years ahead. Indeed. Uh, much more is mentioned. PolicySchool.ca. Really interesting uh, new study. Professor McQuillan, thanks for uh, joining us here this afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Kevin McQuillan, who's a, a professor at the Department of Sociology, University of Calgary, co-authored this study for the School of Public Policy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, for these towns, these, these communities, it's a challenge. You know, if your population isn't growing, if your population is shrinking, then that, that creates some problems. But beyond those, those communities, uh, does the rest of the province have a broader interest? You know, if there's a community in southern Alberta or central Alberta, wherever, that was once, you know, 2,000 people, it's now down to 1,200 people. Do we care? Like, you know, does, does, does that rise to the level of, um, you know, this is the Alberta government's problem to deal with? You know, communities grow, communities shrink. I mean, you know, the population makes its decisions where they want to live, I guess. But clearly there's, there's been a, a push towards, you know, the big cities and those communities around those big cities to the detriment uh, of those smaller communities. So do we care? Is there something to be said for having vibrant rural towns and villages? Now, you know, the guest mentioned the work-from-home trend. Obviously, you can look as well at the, the situation around the cost of housing. Is there a potential to turn this into opportunities for younger families? Like, yeah, it's expensive to buy a house in Calgary, even bedroom communities around Calgary. But 
you know, the smaller community that's a couple hours away, you know, it's like half the price for a house. So what's it going to take for young families to say, yeah, you know what, we, we kind of like this town. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.